This is Morgan Michael, welcoming you to Kindsight 101, the podcast where you'll hear from world-renowned educational leaders about the mobilizing power of kindness, together by challenging our assumptions and venturing beyond the status quo in education, we can make a big impact, one small act at a time. As we change our social structure, we sometimes lose some of the things that kept us psychologically healthy. And so how do we go about creating those in our environments to keep that part of ourselves that needs those connections and needs that sense of belonging intact? Have you ever wondered what the difference is between a resilient person and someone who isn't so resilient doesn't have the capacity to bounce forward or bounce back from adversity? Dr. McAdam is the founder of Resilient Generations, a social enterprise based in Canada with a specific focus on Africa. She seeks to help unemployed youth in Africa, increase the diversification of employment market for youth, and increase trade from Africa. Dr. McAdam is a professor, coach, and speaker in the area of developing resilience. In this conversation, you'll learn the three keys to becoming resilient, as well as the simple ways that you can build your resilience and that of your students. Prepare to come away inspired. So Dr. Jacqueline McAdam, thank you so much for joining me today on Kindsight 101. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me and I look forward to chatting with you today. So you've done a lot of work in terms of resilience through your Resilient Generation social enterprise. And I'd love to, to hear a little bit about your work in Africa and what it's taught you about resilience. I understand you wrote your more than luck doctoral thesis as part of your quest to find the secrets of resilience while traveling in Africa. Can you speak to that? Well, I think it started um, quite uh it started before I went to Africa. I, I have worked in the human service field for over 30 years. And I started working with pretty street-involved youth in Victoria and and young people that had experienced quite a bit of adversity in their life. And I was often puzzled by the abilities of some to cope and others who, in comparison, had what we'd say experienced fewer risks and their inability to cope. And that question just became a bigger question when I started working um, and living in Africa. So I started going to Africa in, well, in 1991 in more of a work uh, situation. And I was working with young people from a very large slum area in Kenya. And what I witnessed is that these people, though they were economically at a greater disadvantage than the young people that I'd worked with in Canada, they were actually psychologically healthier on many levels. They didn't have, although they were working on the street, there were really different reasons that they were working on the street. And so I started researching that. And then later on, I worked in Rwanda right after the genocide. And my, you know, my interest was peaked again as children sought for hope, sought to survive after their whole families had died in the genocide or they'd been separated their, from their families. And that sort of drive to live and for purpose was uh, sort of reinforced again when I was doing some work in Ethiopia. And, and as I noted before, my work is with people that are in extreme adverse situations. And so they are the people that um, many lessons can be learned from. And so that's what spearheaded my dissertation, which, as you noted, is called More Than Luck. Mm -hmm. 
And so you've worked a great deal with youth specifically, and then with your background in child and youth care. It is really interesting to me that the psychological health of North American youth and probably adults, I'm sure you can probably project that to adults as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, That it is so much, I mean, it's just not as, as, as robust as perhaps it is in Africa, considering the differences in adversity outwardly. Um, Exactly. What do you attribute that difference to? Like, why is this the case? Uh, Well, I, you know, living Africa, we'll just use that as an example, because that's the one that I have the most experience with, is a collectively based culture. And in collectively based cultures, we have the backs of our families, we have the backs of our close neighbors, we don't move across the other side of the country necessarily for a job. We're not separated from families. And I'm not saying that those things here are necessarily adverse, but they have uh, changed the fabric of our social structure here in North America. And so we live in a much more isolated world here than people do in Africa or in somewhat of a village uh, context. And that in itself, creates differences in our psychological health. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was certainly one of the things I found. I myself used to say that I had a much easier time landing in Africa, wherever I happened to be, in Kenya, Rwanda, or Ethiopia, than I ever had coming back. I never went through the same kind of culture shock being in Kenya as I ever went through being here in Canada. You know, I lived there, I lived in community, there was people everywhere, you walked in the street, there was always people. And that's just not the case here. We 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 have quite an isolated life here in the West. Mm-hmm. Some of that is, and I see it now, as the weather gets nicer, more and more people are going outside, less likely to happen in the winter. So we don't have those same uh, opportunities to connect. So I think that makes a big difference. I also think we have much smaller families. Uh, the work that I, and I'm not, as I said, none of these are disadvantaged, like none of these are negatives. They're just things to recognize and say, as we change our social structure, we sometimes lose some of the things that kept us psychologically healthy. And so how do we go about creating those in our environments to keep that part of ourself that needs those connections and needs that sense of belonging intact? Yes. And I, that's what I hear is the common thread through this is it's almost like we're operating in silos and the connection and the proximity to one another emotionally, but also physically is just mm-hmm. not really there. And would you, I mean, just to stay with that theme for a minute, as an educator, as a mother, as an individual in this society, I see the the rise in statistics in terms of depression, anxiety, even mm-hmm. suicide uh, yeah. really rising in North America. So again, do you think that that's sort of, I'm sure there's a myriad of factors, but mm-hmm. do you think that that belonging piece, that connection piece has something to do with it and how so? Um, yeah, I would affirm that it does, but I, I don't think you can isolate one piece. Uh, I draw from a theory called the ecological theory, which is was developed by a fellow named Yuri Broffenbrenner and, and he says that it's systems and how those systems interact that we really need to look at. So by isolating just one piece, we may neglect other pieces that are equally important. So when we look at the number of young people, and I always like to 
preface this by saying each situation needs to be dealt with differently, but there are an amazing number of people that connect through social internet, through social media, that if that wasn't present, you'd wonder how else they might have connected. And it's it's the amount of time that's spent doing that, not that it in itself is a problem. Mm. So the fact that young people, and, and there's been huge advantages to it as well. The people that I work with in Kenya, I connect with them through social media. I stay connected the, with, through them, through social media with them. I have Facebook groups that I can chat with them, that I can keep up them to, with their lives. I also work at seeing them when I'm there. That has created greater sense of belongings for me in terms of the work that I do. But in the immediate uh, environment, I sometimes create, think that it fragments it fragments groups mm-hmm. and it, it can cause uh, comparisons that we wouldn't normally make. So the other piece that comes into this is the whole idea of choice as well. What the research has shown is that when we have greater choices, we have a lot more difficulty. We have the sense that because that choice was available to us, on some levels, we're entitled to that choice. When we don't have that choice available to us, there's no sense of entitlement that goes along with that. Right. Because you just do what you've got to do to, to follow the one path, either do or die. Right. Exactly. Right. So that's kind of within the context of where we're at as a developed country, there are so many choices. And through the social media context, we also see those choices in our face all the time. Exactly, which is why I pointed that out in relationship to what I was just discussing. Yes, that is so, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way before. And do you find that that, I mean, how do people react to that choice in terms of their behavior? How do you see that playing out here in Canada? Well, as I said, I added the piece that it's somewhat, because the choice is there, there's a sense of um, entitlement to the choice. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's not the right word, but there's a sense of, because that is achievable, then I should be achieving that. So when we don't achieve it and other people around us are achieving it, there is a sense of a greater sense of hopelessness than if we were in a situation where less people were achieving it. So for instance, we compare ourselves to the people that are in our environment. And the the saying we use is people compare themselves to the Joneses, for instance. When we're living in a slum area of Kenya and everybody else that is in our surrounding is equally living in the same slums, they're at the same economic level, there's no sense of that comparison. There's no sense of envy Mm. that happens. And so... Uh, You'll find this in some work that I did in the area of quality of life, that people's quality of life actually goes down when they are in a situation where people are living significantly different than they are. Hmm. Because they psychologically feel that they haven't got what they deserve. And whether they do it or not, that's a totally psychological, um, uh, it's it's a psychological aspect to it. And it's how we then, as individuals, perceive that. So interesting. So to stay that gives with it power. Yeah, you and know what I'm I do. And to stay with that theme for a minute, we know that so much of what is posted on social media is posturing. It's not really grounded in 
reality. And so when we couple that with our desire to compare ourselves against that, what do you think the effects are of that? Or what have you seen? Well, I think, you know, you pointed it out when we talk about the mental health field. Um, I mean, we just talked about anxiety and depression, but anorexia is huge as well here. Um, And when you look at sort of the incidents in other cultures, um, you know, it reminded me of kind of a, a, a story. I have these young women that I work with in Kenya, and I had a woman here who'd actually asked for some graphic design work and she said you know I, I want a, 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 a woman's body that just illustrates um, sort of a sensual w- a, a woman's body but not sensual in the sense of sexy but sensual in the sense of it's a body that we could all identify with and these young women that I was working with in Kenya of course produced this lovely sensual looking skinny young woman and when I presented it to the woman who was asking for it she said no no that's not what I'm looking for at all Hmm. and when I was doing this workshop in Kenya with these young women I said I said this this image is an image that people strive for and it's causing lots of problems in our culture and I said you know anorexia is really common and they all looked at me as if like what are you talking about like (laughs) what do you mean body image like Kenyan women are naturally quite large and and when I used to live in Kenya uh, when I was younger you know their big concern about me was that I never ate enough (laughs) because I'm not a large person I'm a smaller person and you know I'd say no no this is just who I am (laughs) so you know we wrap a lot up on that and and social media is is certainly one of the ways that we illustrate that in our culture Mm -hmm. and the whole body image uh, has led to a lot of challenges Mm -hmm. in specifically I wouldn't just say young women or men uh, because when I've um, I also teach adolescent psych and and the conversation always comes up about young men and steroids and it's becoming a bigger issue so that whole body image that we perpetuate through social media and magazines it hasn't just been social media it's been going on for years it's just that it's more intensified through things like social media and it's in our face and in our pockets in our all faces. the time. Yes. That's yeah. right. What yeah. would you say, just to, to stick with that theme for a minute too, as a teacher, as an educator, as someone who's connected with kids, and I mean, even as a mother and raising a daughter, what mm-hmm. sort of messaging should should we be providing our students and, and children with when they're faced with this constant bombardment of you're not enough, you're not enough, you should be this ideal, you should be that. How do we navigate that? Well, I'm also a mother and I've also worked with a lot of parents. And I think one of the keys is to be allow our, our children to, to be their authentic selves, whatever that is. And it's only through that that they can experiment with different parts of themselves and that understanding that that openness and that lack of judgment or shame around who they are as individuals allows not only our children, but everybody in our lives to certainly feel more comfortable in who they are. Mm, I love that. You talked earlier about, about hope. Mm -hmm. I know that, that there's an element of maybe resilience that's grounded in this concept of hope versus despair. Can you talk about the difference between the two and how it relates to this concept of, of resilience and, yeah. and bouncing forward? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I I know that you've heard me speak before, and, and one of the stories that I often use 
to illustrate the whole idea of hope is a story of a young woman that I met when I was working in a displaced persons camp in Ethiopia. And she had done the walk from Eritrea. She'd been living in this displaced camp for about 12 years and she was living there with her children and her grandchildren. And it was horrible conditions. You know, there were holes in the tents, they slept on cots and they'd been doing this for, for years. And a psychologist that I was working with, I said to him, you know, why do they stay? Like, what is that? Like, who would stay? This is horrible living conditions. And he said to me, you know, why don't you ask them? So I did. And I went to this woman and I said, you know what, what keeps you here? You've been here a long time. Um, you know, you're still getting food rations. What keeps you here? And she says, the government has promised, the government has promised to take care of us. Mm-hmm. And it was just sort of that aha moment that not only provided insight into her journey, but it in, provided insight into the many people that I had worked with that were in abusive relationships. It's that idea, the hope that something will change. And so we hold on to that hope, but it's dysfunctional in the sense that it we haven't set the boundaries that we need to set within that hope. Mm-hmm. So because those boundaries are not set, that we 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 let those boundaries up, we keep those boundaries sort of as fate, mm-hmm. it is not a resilient sense of hope. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you look deeper into the research on hope, hope needs to have goals, it needs to have pathways, and there needs to be some form of agency that's going to get us there. Right. And, and it's not to say that we don't reevaluate along the way, but if we don't keep reevaluating and keep send it, setting those boundaries, hope is not a resilient characteristic. That's so interesting. And so really the difference is what is your role in that yes. hope versus it, just letting it happen to you or hoping? It, exactly. Yeah. So in that story that I just told, she said, the government has promised that they will look after us. So she almost was a victim to that. Mm-hmm. And you'll see it in people that are in dysfunctional relationships, not just relationships, but work situations, a variety of things that is causing them some sense of stress or adversity. And they will put it out to the other person. Oh, you know, my boss said they'll do this, or my partner says they'll do this. And they just wait. Mm. Rather than using self-efficacy, which is a huge component of being resilient, Mm -hmm. is that ability to take it on yourself and say, okay, I understand that I'm going to get a raise, but you need to know that if it doesn't happen in this period of time, I can't stay here. Right. Do you see the difference? Yes, absolutely. And I think there's there's an accountability piece to that as well. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So so let's dive in a little bit to this concept of resilience. This Do you consider it, like for me, I've, I've really leaned into this concept of, of bouncing forward after trauma or, or some kind of, you know, adverse situation, not just necessarily back to the status quo, but actually being able to grow. Can you tell me what resilience is? I, I, I agree with that. Um, I've often, as I've defined it with people or when I'm doing workshops and I'll say, you know, what is resiliency to you? People will say, oh, it's bouncing back. And uh, as if it was an elastic Mm. and, and I say, no, it's more like (coughs) to me, a ball that bounces and then doesn't return to the same state. Um, and not that's not maybe the best metaphor because often it doesn't go higher. And sometimes I think that there are different states that you get to. Sometimes it, it is um, what 
some might refer to as a higher state. And that certainly takes place when we talk about this concept of post-traumatic growth, mm -hmm. which is when we've, we've gone through extreme adversity and we actually take on that adversity with a vengeance to say, I never want this to happen to anyone again. And I'm actually going to start an organization or I'm going to start a initiative that creates awareness. Mm. And we, we certainly see that a lot in people that are highly resilient, but that's a different kind of resiliency. And it is actually referred to as post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. So how, how do we get to a place? I mean, whether it is getting to a place of growth and, and moving states, or if it's just, you know, you've been broken down by your experience or you've had a really difficult time. Uh, I think about students, even in the classroom, some of them mm -hmm. have a really tough time learning because of learning mm -hmm. disabilities or, mm -hmm. or just the friendship kind of issues, whatever it is. How do we, how do we teach ourselves to be resilient? How do we teach others to be resilient? What is the key to resilience? Well, I think I've taught, well, one of the keys is that there's no pat answer, mm -hmm. but what I did find in my work was that we can tell a whole lot more about how a person will do, not be by the risks that they experienced in life, but the number of protective factors that they have in life. So protective factors, if we're looking at a systems model, is the interplay between a number of different things in our lives. So when we look at systems theory, systems theory says there's a whole, so there's, there's us as individuals, there's our family, there's our community around us. And within all those different aspects of our environment and our life, we have things called opportunities. So for instance, I use the example that says that you can't actually tell. Um, it's it's very qualitative. It's a dynamic process. You might have a child born into a family that had parents that had extremely good parenting skills, and that child thrived, and all was good. Those parents would do significantly better as they would do just as well if they had a child born into that situation that was highly sensitive or had challenges because they were buffered by the fact that the parent, parents had really good parenting skills. Right. But if the parents lived in poverty, this makes it equally more challenging. There's been research done, um, it was actually done in the British Longitudinal Study that illustrated that children that are born of a lower birth weight that are born in poverty have significantly higher health risks as they go through life. Mm. So you can't just isolate one thing. You have to look at how do we increase the protective opportunities within a child's life? Um, so those are things like how, what kind of systems do we have to have within a society that, first of all, allows parents to cope well? We know that parents, when they're under stress, they don't parent well. Yeah. So how do we buffer that? How do we create uh, environments or neighborhoods where people can trade off kids, where it's like, I'm having a really hard night and I'm a single parent and boy, it would be really great if you fed my kids tonight. Mm. You know, I have embraced that in my life because uh, I, I really do have a strong belief in community. And throughout most of my children's younger years, I had people that I child swapped with. Right. Because I believed in more people were stronger buffers to my ch for my children. And so I embraced that and walked my talk, basically. 
powerful because I think in this culture too, there's, I mean, you can't deny that there's an element of shame with that, especially within the mom culture and the mom shaming that happens to step into that and accept help, provide help, all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of seeing it as a, as a, from a deficiency standpoint, really looking yeah. at it, like, are we bolstering our communities? And I, I think that's really a, a really interesting way to look at resiliency, not just being within the palms of the individual, but really how do we set up our communities? So like you said, exactly. through the systems, how do we do that? As an yeah. educator, of course, I mean, I'm the leader of the system within my classroom to a certain mm-hmm. extent. I have impact on the way that my school culture, uh, mm-hmm. the, the climate feels right. Mm-hmm. And so how would you say that, you know, we can, we can create that sense of, of comfort, even within a classroom setting? I know that you're, you, you've been a teacher well, you in know, many different ways, right? Yeah. Well, and also too, I remember when my kids were in school, they had the whole buddy system that they did where they had an older child matched up with younger kids. Mm-hmm. And I remember my daughter and her friend were buddies to a grade one class where they would go in at lunch and did activities with the kids. And, and, and so they you know, they kind of mentored. And that kind of thing is really important because one of the things that we found in the whole area of development is uh, that impedes resiliency is the inability to embrace the concept of empathy. And so as our families get smaller, empathy is not built into our families in the same way. There's research that's illustrated that uh, firstborns or certainly in the work that I've done, those young people that had to look after other brothers and sisters had such a stronger sense of purpose uh, based on the fact that they cared for others. There's research that says that mums that have to care for their children in war zones actually do better because they have that sense of not only purpose beyond themselves, but there's some there's the element of empathy that comes into it as well. And it, it's the whole premise upon which the Roots of Empathy project was begun. Mm-hmm. Would you know about that project where they bring babies into classrooms? I do, but would you speak to yeah. it? Uh, well, I'll just give a snippet of it. Sure. It's a, it was a project that um, I believe it was started in Toronto to address issues of bullying. And what they did was they had a new mom, I think the baby, I don't know how old the baby had to be, you know, maybe three months old, agree to come in and uh, share the first year of that baby's life with children in a classroom. And I think the baby would come in once a month and the kids would learn about, you know, what the baby did and the element of the the concept of empathy was developed and compassion. Mm. And they're huge. Those concepts are huge. Um, in terms of our own psychological growth and sense of resiliency. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I wanted to go back to was your um, comment on, you know, the asking and the shame and asking mm-hmm. and the shame of, oh, I need help. People that are more resilient ask for help. Mm-hmm. They recognize they can't do it alone and they ask. We know that we're we're not meant to to do everything alone. We live in communities. And so just the element of asking was a huge component. Um, And I'm not just talking about people we know, I'm talking about strangers Mm -hmm. because the people that I studied lived in war zones. And sometimes it was around their journey of getting out of that war zone that was part of their story and their adversity. And, 
you know, sometimes you'd have to go to people on the street that you didn't really know well and say, I need help. I need a ride. Yeah. And there's something pretty powerful. I mean, there's some research around the neuroscience and the, the, you know, neurotransmitters that, that are released when we do find ourselves asking and receiving help. Oh, absolutely. And the way that that connects us, I think we're wired for that, aren't we? Yeah. It's all related to oxytocin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the keys of the resilience. I know like I've done some research around Martin Seligman's concept of the three P's, the personalization, the permanence, and then the pervasiveness. When I think of resilience, Martin Seligman, the quote-unquote grandfather of positive psychology, often comes up for me. He developed this theory called the three P's. Essentially, someone who struggles with resilience internalizes the concept of their problem being a personal one. So personalization is the first P. It's all my fault, and there's a lot of shame associated with that. The second P is permanence, this concept that a situation will last forever, which can often lead to despair. And finally, the third P, pervasiveness, is that whatever struggle or adversity you're going through is something that will be pervasive and will apply to every aspect of your life. So often people think about this as luck and the fact that bad luck is what they're destined to experience for the rest of their lives. Now, someone who's resilient would really look at things through the mindset that actually this isn't their fault, so not taking it on personally. Secondly, this isn't a permanent situation. This will change, which creates a sense of hope. And then finally, the pervasiveness is just not there. So this person would have a pretty clear sense that the bad luck or the negative adversity that they're experiencing does not infiltrate every aspect of their life. And interestingly enough, people that are more uh, inclined to be more resilient, the the biggest problem there they have is over-optimism, mm. which again is a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. Because um, over-optimism sometimes means we take on more than we actually should. A lot of work in terms of what I work towards in developing a resilient mindset is around helping people to change those pervasive thoughts that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, What, you know, where's the evidence, which is very much around sort of various therapeutic approaches. Uh, What makes you think this? And then what might be happening here? So you you mind map, you go beyond that doom and gloom to think bigger. Now, in my work, people that are resilient naturally do that. So that's where you grab hold of, okay, wow, this this thing really works. This, you know, I use the example that if there was a tree and it was full of thorns and there was one flower, resilient people overemphasize the flower mm-hmm. and underemphasize the negative. It's just who they are. Mm -hmm. So those are things we can teach people. We can teach people how to overemphasize the the positives and de-emphasize the negatives. And some of that work is done through to creating uh, gratitudes, doing gratitude journals and incorporating gratitudes into the work we do with children. And as I said to someone recently that I was sharing this with, it can't just be one. There is sort of some research around that three seems to be a determined sense a determining factor in the gratitude work right interesting what are some other practices that can that can be incorporated into our lives 
to bring about this resilient approach to adversity and some of the challenges that people inevitably face. Yeah, so I just talked about sort of the increasing our opportunities in our environment. So sometimes that, and I'll, I'll just touch on that and how we can do that when we're looking at people that we work with or uh, children that we're working with, we can look at, so what is our social map? What is our networking? Where do we get what I refer to as our social capital? Who can we call at 1 a.m.? Who can drive us to the ferry, for instance? And so helping people understand gaps in that or where it may need to be strengthened is really key. Like life may be going really well and everything's good, and oftentimes we don't think about those things, but that's actually the time to think about it. Right. To say it's going well, this is a time actually that I can figure out who's important to me and figure out how I can give to them. Because reciprocity is a huge part of what keeps our relationships going. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So that was, that's one. So where are our social, well, I call it social capital. Um, and then what I was talking about is sort of how do we change mindset? How do we help ourselves look at things a different way? Um, and as you talked about with somebody's doom and gloom and it's sort of a situation is pervasive. Uh, I think also too, depending on the adversity, one has to recognize that some of it is normal. Mm -hmm. When we, you know, I often say to somebody and it, it happens more with people that I work with that may have just gone through a breakup and, and they'll say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling with this. And, and I'll say, well, it only happened two weeks ago. This is totally normal. Like right. if you weren't, if you weren't, I'd be worried about you. Right. And normalizing because, that. Yeah, yeah. Normalizing it. And yes. there, there is an element of normalizing and acceptance that time is a wonderful healer. Right. And I think that's a big key too, is not wanting to just push, 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 mm -hmm. um, on our time. Right. And sort of sitting back and just being mindful of the experience and taking it mm -hmm. in and having some space between that stimulus and the and and your response to it, right? And and what's going on in your life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know, it comes back to our fast-paced life that says, "Well, okay, this is my goal, and I'm not achieving it right now because I've got all this other stuff I'm working on." Well, you know, who said you had to do it that right then? And <laughs> <laughs> you know, the emotional stuff needs to be dealt with because if you don't deal with the emotional stuff, you'll come back after. Yes. Yes. You know, I always say you can, you know, denial is a nice place to take a holiday, but you don't want to live there. <laughs> so true. Actually, my, uh, I chose a word for New Year's this year and it was actually patience because yeah. I find that's, that's often my mindset as well is, is I tend to want things to happen fairly quickly. And so going, no, no, just, just wait. Like it doesn't all have to be in this really crazy pace, right? Yeah. I yeah. want to I want to talk a little bit about joy. I know that you mentioned joy in your presentation, and that that it's definitely one of the things that that can help one to to be more resilient, right? Mm -hmm. is, is seeking out the joy. How can mm -hmm. we how can we invite joy into our life a little more readily? Uh, I think some of the things that I've referred to already in terms of like the gratitude and seeing what's in front of us and appreciating what we have as opposed to what we don't have and 
you know, it draws me back to the article that was actually done on joy that was done by Jody Patterson that was um, published in YAM. I don't know if you saw it, but it was it was specifically on joy and she sort of uh, thread through some of my work on resiliency. I did. And, I did see that one. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, you know, one of the quotes that that I said in there uh, was that often res- resilient people give more than they get. Mm. And of course, there's boundaries on that. We don't want to be totally taken advantage of. But there's no scorekeeping that happens. And um, oftentimes I'll work with people and they'll say, well, I did this for them and they didn't do that for me. Mm. And I'll say, you know, scorekeeping just that it, our relationships like that, like maybe they did this for you and you did that for you, but somebody else will do something else for you. Mm-hmm. Like when we get caught up in the scorekeeping and don't just like live in the moment of, gee, that felt good to be able to do that for that other person. Mm-hmm. And it's not about the other person. It's about ourselves yeah. and the joy that we get from what we're doing as opposed to expecting a response. Yes. And back to that whole theme of entitlement, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Before we move on to the three final questions, is there anything (laughs) that you'd like to add to the conversation that you haven't yet had a chance to speak about? Um, I'm just thinking, I think I touched on the fact that, you know, it's really important to have more protective factors than it is to focus on the risks that we've undergone. Mm. Um, That certainly came out in my work. Um, that we can tell more about how how a person will do if we're looking at so for instance if we have a young person that we're working with or somebody we work maybe working with in a counseling situation if they if the risk seems to be the whole focus of the conversation then we can almost be assured that the pathway forward will be troubled because there's not enough protective factors to go in there tell yeah. me more about what you mean by that so Give me an example of what you mean by the risks versus, I, you have talked about the protective factors, but what, what do you mean by the risks? Okay, so if somebody comes in and they're presenting with depression, for mm-hmm. instance, um, that's a defined risk within ah. itself. And if those risks are compounded with isolation, negative thought process, um, uh, those are two that usually go with depression. And there's no ways to buffer those. So, mm. uh, for instance, oftentimes I use a resilient framework, a resilient mindset to work with people that identify as struggling with depression. I try to get them in touch with, so what are things that create joy for you? Mm-hmm. Where is your purpose? What are the things that you love to do? And then we make a plan of how that's going to happen. And so oftentimes through the, if let's use depression as the example, if we're burdened with depression, it's really hard for us to go out and do other things. And so it's baby steps and Mm -hmm. little things. And it could be as small as, okay, task yourself to go out for coffee once a week with somebody that brings you joy. Even smaller, task yourself to watch, you know, comedy. Mm -hmm. Because we know that all those things make a difference in terms of experiencing joy, but also changing brain chemistry, which is has a huge key component of it so it's being able to identify those things that increase the joy in our life and then um actualize them love that thank you for that what does kindness mean to you um 
kindness means to me the ability to do something for another, not because you think it's the right thing to do, but because that's what they want. Hmm. What trait or superpower should an educator lead with in order to be effective? A trait or superpower? Mm. Well, the trait, I would say, is that we have to recognize that every day we do something, especially when we're doing something in front of children, we're modeling our behavior. Mm -hmm. And that modeling is a huge component in other people shaping their behavior. I always talk about, you know, okay, you got, you know, I'll be your Jiminy Cricket. You know, that's the only one that I ever use is that whole idea of the Pinocchio's Jiminy Cricket that said, you know, you're not, this is not what you should be doing right now. Right. So, yeah. yeah. No, I think that's great. And if you were to print a quote on one of those quote cups that were sold in big bookstores, what would it be? Well, a quote that has been near and dear to my uh, heart and to my office desk for a while is one that says luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. It's mm. a good one. As I, as I said, that my dissertation was called more than luck. And the reason it was is because I do think it's more than luck. And I think there's things that we can do to increase our potential for luck in our life. Beautiful. That's a great place to end off. Thank you so much, Dr. McAdam. This, this was is great. great. Yeah, it was. It was awesome. Thank you so much. I want to thank you for the wonderful reviews that you've left for this podcast on iTunes. Your reviews make a big difference in helping other educators find this show. If you think that I'm doing good work here and you'd like others to get inspired and join our 21 day kindness challenge and movement, I'd love it. If you would take a minute, head over to iTunes and leave a review. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of Kind Sight 101, the podcast. For links to resources mentioned in this episode, visit smallactbigimpact.com and click on our podcast and choose this episode number. Now, I'd love to give my audience a heads up about my new book, which will provide ideas, actionable strategies, and inquiry-based approaches to creating kinder classroom through serving the community. Subscribe to my blog, for more information. Now I would love to hear from you. What's the biggest insight that you gain from this conversation? Head over to our website, smallactbigimpact.com, leave a comment on our podcast page, or tag and connect with us on social media with the hashtag smallactbigimpact to share your inspiring story of kindness. Can't wait to hear from you.